Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. And as I'm picking up the balls and I'm walking up the stairs, Bob comes out from behind the hedge. So he's basically watched the whole session. Oh, wow. And he says, right, let's go for a coffee. So he sat down and he said, I can help you. And that right there, I think, is one of the best stories that we've had in our 137 episodes. And that is Ben Harron. Ben talking about his mentor, the great late Bob Brett, who unfortunately we lost this year to cancer. Bob was Ben's mentor for the last 10 or 15 years. And that was a little story that he'll talk about during the episode as we get to know that relationship a little bit better. Ben has been at Reed School now for the last 17 years as a coach and as the head coach where he looks after many of the best UK talents and has done for many, many years. And that's also where his tennis happened on the Slater squad with Tim Henman, Jamie Delgado, you know, all of those guys back at, back in the day. So there really is many stories to be told, many great insights to be told as a player, as a coach, as someone who is so heavily involved in British tennis across all of the different lenses. I'm going to pass you over now to Ben Harron. So Ben Harron, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Great to see you, Dan. Everything Okay. Very good. It's a it's a pleasure to have you on. You're your one that on my first ever list I wrote, I wrote Ben Harron. And and I've watched out to see if you've been on many of these podcasts or kind of hearing your story. And I've not heard much, if anything. So is there a reason why you tend to be a little bit reluctant to do this sort of thing? Um, I, probably my personality a little bit. I tend to like to just uh you know, crack on with things and uh, almost let uh, let other people make their opinion on 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 how good my work's been. Uh, the only time really I've sort of been asked to do one of these was a while ago, maybe five six years ago, and it was actually while I was in San Remo, which will come up later, I'm sure, when I speak about Bob Brett. But I but I asked him. I said, look, Bob, I've been asked to do. It was actually a presentation. I've been asked to do a presentation to some some coaches in Surrey. Um, you know, what do you think? And he was like, no, you've got to do something in coaching first, Ben. You know, you've got to get some experiences. You've got to work with some players. You've got to have some successes. So I don't think that's the right time for you. And I think that was probably him just sort of saying, you know, keep your feet on the ground. And uh, and he was very much, very much like that. So, And I thought I'd wait till the 135th episode to come forward, really. <laughs> <laughs> that, special, that special one. Well, I think you're going to be 137, which, is al- okay. which has always been a special number. You know, yeah, <laughs> you of know? course. <laughs> Nick Boliteri, 100. But that, that actually, though, it does. The thought I have there, Ben, and I don't want to blow too much smoke up your backside, but Ryan Jones talked about this. There being no more than two handful 
of of coaches in the UK that are producing players. Um, whether that's true or it's not true, I think I think the reality is that's not just a British thing. That's a thing around the world. There's not really that many coaches that have had the dedication, the the commitment to go out and do what it takes to produce players. But I would always have you on that list. And I'm sure Ryan would have had you in mind on that list. It's something for years and years. So why would Bob not see that as success? Because I, I think that goes into almost assuming that the only success is coaching players to Grand Slam titles. Because you've coached so many players to international level in the younger age groups is that not almost making that a little bit inferior to being a top professional well in terms of in terms of him mentioning not to yeah you've not achieved anything whereas ben harron for me six years ago is coached already hundreds of players and tens of players to being world champions of under 14 you know national champions to, to a very, very high level. Is that because he's thinking success is coaching pros to a certain level? I think it's just, uh, I mean, I'm going to say five or six years ago, it might have been longer than that, but I think he was very big on, um, you know, learning your trade as a coach. And I, I think it's something, when I say that the new generation of coaches, when they finish playing, I think they want to go in and, and start straight away with, with good players and top players. You know, it's a very hard job when you go in and you maybe don't have the experience straight away. It's difficult to then make mistakes. You know, whereas, you know, when you, you're learning your trade and you're, you know, you're working with lots of players, different types of players, younger players, older players. Yeah, you're, you're understanding how to coach, you're learning how to get better and you probably can afford, although you're not trying to afford to make a few mistakes or take a little bit longer to get to where you want to get to because... You're not under instant pressure because the player is a, you know, a top international player. So I think and that was always something that he talked to me a lot about. You know, he'd say to me, you've got to coach 100 players before you call yourself a coach. Oh. You know, whether he meant that number exactly, of course not, but that sort of point of, you know, get out there, get on court, learn your trade, learn from people, improve yourself, you know, and, and be humble. And I think that was my take from, from, from what he meant from that. Yeah. And, and I think that messaging is spot on. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a lovely message and it's, it's the right message. And I think it's a, the right one to preach, I, I, I guess, just to separate my points. I, I agree with that part, but I, I guess success We've talked a lot on this on this show around success and, and the relativeness of success. So obviously there's success on the court, there's success as a person, there's you know happiness, health, and you know, all of these, all of these type of things. But if I talk about success in terms of performance, do you ever think that maybe coaches that are working with junior players don't quite get that stamp of approval of success? to the same if all of a sudden we waltzed into Andrew Richardson. Great example. You know, Andrew Richardson, I think we know, has done a great job for many years, you know, working with many junior players, whereas the world doesn't know Andrew Richardson. But in all due respect to his job with Emma Raducanu, he's gone and done and sat in a box for a few weeks and I'm sure helped her be in the right frame of mind. Yes, the perception is he's now a world-class coach. 
Yeah, and I, well, I think it's I think it's something where it, with the, with the public or in the coaching world, that you know they're only looking at the top end, top end of top end of the game. So, you know, the coach, and that goes back to the point you 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 made earlier, where where you were saying, you know, maybe we don't have a lot of coaches that are bringing players through, is because of that very reason. It's it's tough, you know. You've got to be unbelievably passionate, unbelievably dedicated to be churning out players that maybe move on. Maybe you don't stay in that journey with them. And then you have to start again and you go on that cycle and you have to start again. And that's, you know, as a coach, that's, that's tough, but ultimately it comes down to, you know, the pride in what you do. You, you love what you do and you try to make the best of every player. But, um, but definitely the focus is a lot on the, the, the top end of the game. And does that it does that link in? And, and I know again the listeners are going, Dan, you've not asked him about how he got into tennis yet. That's what we do on the on the podcast. And we will, don't worry, we'll get back to that. But I think this is an important topic because again, we had Alastair Filmer, and I know you told me before before we started this chat that you'd you'd listen to that. And I think we've we've had unbelievable amount of feedback on the Alistair Filmer podcast. Because I think he he showed a little bit of vulnerability there, that he that feeling of of self worth of almost almost judging ourselves as coaches to the to the level of player that we are coaching, <clears throat> and I know just to jump ahead to you as a coach now you've for years and years and years you've worked tirelessly with young young players but I've noticed over the last couple of years you started to do a little bit of work with Dan Evans you've started to do a little bit of work with James Ward you know is that something that's linked to almost your self-worth feeling you need to work at that end or is that am I maybe pushing the button on something you've not thought about before no I mean d- definitely highly motivated to to work at that end but you know when you talk about maybe sometimes you get pigeonholed if you're you know, if you, as a development coach, let's say, you know, I believe if you're a good coach, you can work at every level, yep. male or female. I think if you're a good coach and you're, you're good at understanding players, the way they are as people, their personalities, which I think is, is huge, the relationship you build with a player. And you've learned your trade and you have the confidence that when you get an opportunity already, I believe that you can, uh, that can happen. Um, do, do you do you believe that some coaches are more suited to certain age groups and maybe boy girl than than they are? I, I agree that the if you're a really good coach, you can you can tend to work across the spectrum. Do you, but do you think that there is a certain type of coach that's more suited to working with a certain age or sex of player? Yeah, I think every age and stage is massively important. Um, you know, if you're if you do an, a, an amazing job with six to ten year olds when they first start getting into the game and giving them great fundamentals, and ultimately you're motivated to do that, that's a massively important role. You know, and maybe we don't like say even giving credit to coaches at different stages of development, but for me personally, that's a big motivation of mine is to ultimately you know, to work with a player at a young age and take them through to the, to the highest level, you know, going back to your point on, uh, on, on Dan and James, I, I believe like if you, if you, if you get your head down and you work hard and you can produce good results, opportunities will come. Yep. 
Um, and both those opportunities, the opportunity with James was literally uh, a dinner conversation with Ross Hutchins. We were chatting tennis and he just sort of said, oh, would you fancy helping James over the grass? It was literally as simple as that. And, uh, and it was sort of out the blue. And I was surprised and, you know, probably a little bit at, at first, a little bit like, OK, this is quite this it seems quite out of my comfort zone, but then got into it and, you know, it went really well. I had a great sort of two months with James and probably the situation with Dan came about because he knew that I'd you know, yep. seen me with, he seen me with James. He, you know, we got to know each other well. Um, he was in a situation where he, you know, he was looking for some, some, some help at that time back at base. Um, and that came about as a result of that. So there's sometimes the things that can happen, I believe, if you, you know, if you believe in what you're doing and you, and you work hard, sometimes you need that bit of luck as well. But but that's after how many years of coaching? Uh, well, Reeds, I've been there 17 years, so probably 20 years. Yeah. And, and I think that's an important message for, for coaches as well, because I think there's a lot of coaches out there that think, well, I've been, I've been working so hard for the last three months. Where's my, where's my opportunity to work with Roger Federer? You know, like, where, you know, where is it? And it's like, it's, it's that, it's that type of thing that I, I, I think that, that message that I think is really important to, to those that are listening. And so that's you, we've, we've kind of gone through, gone through that and I want to get into more of the detail but I mean I we go back a long long time Ben you know uh, I have to tell the listeners you're definitely a little bit older than me as, as they as they would see if they could see at least they can't see yeah <laughs> um <laughs> how, however there's loads of bits I'm going I wonder how Ben started I wonder what happened at that part of your life so so where did where did tennis start for you it started um the first big thing for me was when I was uh, selected to be part of the Slater squad, which was um, a scheme that was was set up by David Lloyd and Jim Slater so far ahead of its time, really, because at that point, uh, I don't think, especially in, in this country, that people believe that you should take young players and take them away from home um, and, and get them into a training environment. So I was selected with that alongside... Jamie Delgado is a good friend of ours, Tim Hem and James Bailey, who won Australian Open, James Davidson, lots of names that people would know. Um, so I left home just before I was 10 wow. um, to go, yeah, to go to Reeds, Reeds School. And there was 12 of us. We trained out of Heston to start with and, and David Lloyd Rains Park. And I was at Reeds for five, six years. You know, was junior national champion, played most of the junior grand slams um, did pretty well, pretty well as a junior got to started playing sort of futures and trogging around um, with it, with a group of players that we were based at the Selnet center, the Queens. And, uh, and then very quickly realized that, um, you know, I wasn't going to make a, a living from tennis um, and then decided to stop when I was probably 22. And then, um, Pretty quickly, again, it was a sort of fell on my fell on my uh, lap. Was um, travelled with uh, Lydia Ostolo, who was a name you'd know. She was world number one junior. I think she got to like about thirty WTA. So she basically asked me as a hitter to to travel with her, and then I ended up sort of coaching her for about six months. 
and that was the kind of journey my journey really through um you know that young age starting a reads and going back to the slater squad because it's pretty high profile the slater squad because i think obviously obviously tim henman coming out jamie delgado ben harron you know these all these all the all these big names what was so special about it and why why did it have the success that it did have um i think there's a lot of camaraderie i think uh, we felt part, part of something very special you know to the even to the extent that we all we all used the same racket i mean you would kind of imagine these things now but we all used all used the same racket all wore the same clothes which racket um, it was the slazenger pro ceramic the white one um so you know when everyone when we turn up to tournament you know you felt like you were part of something very special i mean i loved it i loved the tennis i mean i i just lived for the tennis i found that the schooling very hard to start with being away from home i have to uh, you know be honest with that it was really hard but i just i knew that i just knew that if i the opportunity i had to train with those players i wasn't going to get that back in hampshire and so I just got through it. I mean, literally at times just could just got through the day to day and just waited for the tennis. And, you know, David Lloyd at the time was, you know, he's a very inspirational guy, you know, of what he'd done in tennis, you know, he's a huge name in, in tennis. So he used to be there. He used to take us back to school sometimes. And it was just um, from the tennis side and, and the people you, you were around, it's a pretty amazing time. So that then brings in a, a bigger question I have in my head. Why did Tim Henman make it to number three or four in the world? Grand Slam semi-finalist on numerous occasions. Jamie Delgado played Wimbledon, what, 27 years in a row and had a, had a relatively successful playing career. Why did the others, including yourself, and I guess specifically yourself, not make it as a tennis player? Um, well, in simplistic ways, they're just better tennis players. I mean, <laughs> that's the bottom line. Um, Tim, for starters, was, uh, you know, a lot of people have this perception that when he was younger, he, he, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't very good. I mean, Tim was always top four in the country, had terrible uh, injuries. I think he, he didn't play for almost a year with tennis elbow when he was about 14. And was very, very talented player. I mean, great feel for the game. And he had a, he had a great mind, Tim. You know, he was learned very, very, uh, very quickly, student of the game, um, really, you know, honed his technique and, and honed his skills. And I think as he started to get stronger and more confident, he then just, he just, you know, he just flew. Sometimes you're never sure if that's going to happen. And, as we know, Jamie was a was an incredible junior. You know, won the Orange Bowl semis of Aussie Open at 15 juniors. Uh, but it's that uh, crystal ball, isn't it? You know, why did Tim go on to become so good, and 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 the others didn't? It's that um, little something special there on the mental side, I would say. And he was, a, you know, he was he was a, he was also a big talent, Tim. Because that's a, a, again, just not to labour that point, but. It is something that I guess in our field where we're ultimately paid to try and help players develop to the best of their best of their ability. Is it sometimes that you're just not good enough? Just that's the way it is. You're just not good enough. Or is it that 
there's more could have been done developing a technique, tactics, mental skills, physical skills. You know, where where is it? Where's that line drawn? You know, because I guess sometimes I think people people think that you can just go just go if you play tennis, you work unbelievably hard, you can go and be a tennis player. But I'm not sure it's quite as simple as that. No, I mean, uh, I think it's it's if you look at all you know aspects of the game, that's where tennis is just a brutal game, isn't it? You know, the physical, mental, tactical, technical side, and it's different stages of your development where maybe you get stuck in a certain area. You know, maybe physically you don't work in, or you're a little bit slower than another player, or, or the mental side. You know, you can't execute your your game under pressure. So I think it's it's different stages where some players get it. And some players click and then move on quickly. I think if you get stuck, if you get stuck at a level for a period of time, it, it becomes tricky, becomes hard. And then, uh, you know, the people you're surrounded with, there's so many facets of that, you know, that sort of um, 11 to 18 age, isn't it? That's it's vital. But, you know, in this later squad, we all, you wouldn't say it was anything to do with, with that Tim worked harder than any of the others. We all worked incredibly hard, but he had a natural, a very, very natural feel for the game. He was a very gifted player. And then you put on top of that, that he had a good mind. He always put in, he always worked hard, you know, and, and as he physically got stronger, he just, all those things came together and he, and he, and he moved on. And when you, you said earlier, I realised at that point I wasn't good enough. I wasn't going to be making money from from the sport, and kind of quite quickly moved into into the coaching world. On reflection, what could you have done different to have become a better tennis player? Um, I think that I was probably very very results driven at a very young age. Um, I was very outcome focused. I think I put a lot of pressure on myself. And looking back, I was probably too, sounds a bit, you know, like, because we want players to want it. I was probably too obsessed in some ways. It's okay. interesting. Um, I was probably tennis, thinking tennis 24-7 all the time. And I think I, with, with that came that I put myself, put myself under a lot of pressure. Um, you know, and, and would almost win at all costs at a younger age, you know, so, you know, you're 14, 15, 16, you can get away with that. And then you start getting to 17 and your game's not progressed. And then, you know, the other side is when you see players that you were beating at a younger age start to then overtake you. And that happens very quickly. You know, 16, 17, that gap gets, uh, it gets big quickly. Um, yeah. And then that knocks your confidence, you know, so I, I was always very confident at a young age. And then uh, when that started to happen, 16, 17, 18, and guys that I was beating easily at 14, I started losing to, um, I lost a lot of confidence. Yeah. Um, so, you know, looking back, but I have to say, I, I, you know, when I stopped, I do think probably a lot of people who maybe don't stay in the game have regrets or chips on their shoulder that they didn't get this, they didn't get that. But for me, I was comfortable with when I stopped. Um, there was no, there was no sort of uh, regrets on that side and uh, no, no chip on my shoulder at all. So 
Um, I knew I'd given everything I could, but for whatever reason, those things I talked about meant that I just didn't progress to the level that I needed to, to, to carry on and try and give it a shot. It's such an important point, Ben. Like I'm a big believer that every action has a consequence and, and it, and it also has, there's layers to that consequence and we might not know what that consequence is for 20, 30 years. <laughs> and just mm. listening to you say that it's, it's actually the consequence of you giving your very best is it's meant that you've had freedom of mind to then be the best coach that you can be <laughs> and, and enabled you to have that career. Whereas if you, you've gone into your coaching career with regret, with doubt, with fears, with all of these things, insecurities that you'd built over the years, because maybe you hadn't given it a hundred percent and, you know, you hadn't quite let go of that, then, then you wouldn't be able to be that calming influence and have that clarity of mind to, to be able to coach in, in your way. And I think it's, it's, it's such an important point that, mm. that, you know, players out there, you're not just giving your very best for now. <laughs> you're, you're giving your best in every situation. It's the same with being kind and nice to people, <laughs> you know, might not be nice to somebody and it might, you might try and get a job off them 15 years later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and, and, and there's, 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 there's always those consequences. So I think that's a, it's a lovely way that you've said that in terms of that, if you now, as we move into your coaching, are you able to, it's quite interesting for me now to understand how you approach coaching the obsessive player who maybe is, which not maybe, most players are obsessed about results and, and thinking in the short term and judging themselves on a, on a, on a match by match basis, on a day by day basis of how well they've played. Did they win the 11 up in the practice? Mm. Did they, did they win the weekend tournament? How have you managed to take that experience that you have and, and put that into your coaching? Well, I think, I think the first thing is, is that uh, one of the key things as a coach, I think is adaptability and um, understanding like you just said there, understanding the personality of the player, you know, so you might have a player that is like that, you know, a you know, bit obsessive, very highly strung, uh, incredibly driven. Um, and you, you would, you would deal with that player very different to a player who is a little bit, you know, maybe not thinking enough about tennis or very laid back. You know, it wasn't always, uh, first to practice, last to, last to leave, that type of thing, you, you know, you'd have to deal with those players very differently. And I think that's where it comes down to building relationships with players, how you extract the best out of each player in terms of how you interact with them. You know, a lot of conversations away from the court, um, a lot of opportunities where something's happened and maybe a few days later you revisit it and you pick it up at a time when you feel like they're open to to having that discussion, sending little clips through for them to listen to, just to, you know, some thought provoking a little bit. So I think it's, um, you know, you're constantly working, you're constantly thinking outside of the box as to, okay, what player have I got here? What are they like? What's their personalities like? How can I not try to change them? Because as we know, there's positive and negative in everyone's personality. You know, something that can be a huge strength can sometimes be their biggest weakness. Yep. So how can I get the best out of that, that 
their type of personality. You know, and that's where it comes back to working with lots of players. You know, if you if you're exposing yourself with lots of players, you you go through those experiences and you kind of are maybe able to sort of figure that out a little bit better. On that as well, Ben, I would even go. I said this. I think I might have said it to Nick Wheel on the pod, but uh, we had Mark Bullock who came on, who works with visually impaired players, and and I was saying that should for me be part of the performance coaching coaching course. You know, if you can if you can teach a blind person to play tennis and overcome that obstacle with your communication skills, with your ability to now control the court and the space that you have, mm. the, the challenges, then you work. And also my best learnings came coaching, you know, the local, the local women at the club who, you know, didn't, I didn't want to be coached or my, just my communication style, what I had to understand in doing that. I think there's different levels in what you're saying, you know, all, all, all the way through, but ultimately developing those skills as a coach. So now you start coaching a Dan Evans, a James Ward. Yes, you're not calling on that in every moment, but all of those different experiences have set you up to be able to best help that level of player if needed and have the understanding. Whereas maybe if we go back to you working with Lilia Ostelow, when you first came out as a coach, how, how were you equipped to work with that sort of level of player at that time now that you reflect? Uh, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for that at all. I mean, I, as a player, as you know, you know, there's a big difference between a, a trainer and a teacher, I think. So I think, you know, we've had so many coaches through our time as players and different drills and exercises and come on, you know, intensity and that stuff. I think you kind of know how to do that. But in terms of being in a pressure situation and what you say at that time, I mean, I got so many things, you know, I would scout a player. She'd asked me to go and scout a player and I'd watch a bit of the match and I was like, oh, not really sure, kind of I'm not really seeing it here. And then I'd ask someone and they'd tell me and, and they'd get it wrong. <laughs> so I then go back, to, I'd go back to Lydia and say, okay, you know, you've got to get high to this girl's forehand. Apparently it's quite weak and she's hit like eight winners in the first three games on a high forehand and she's, then she tanks the match. But in terms of, I guess, my coaching, it was um, almost did it the wrong way around. You know, I went straight into straight into the deep end and uh, learned, you know, definitely learned a lot in that six months. Where did you go next? Because when I think Ben Harron, I think I think two two things. I think with you, I think Reeds, mm. and I think Nick Brown, both linked, <laughs> both linked. Both links. So where did I go after that? I went to, um, I actually went to some uh, David Lloyd clubs. I, I went to, did a little bit at the Harbour Club. No performance at all. Then I went to Rygate with James Smith oh. um, for about six months. A little bit of performance, but a mix. Some club stuff in there. Then I went to David Lloyd Woking for a year. Not really any performance. And then 2004, actually, Adrian Blackman, who's still at Reeds now, who's the tennis director at Reeds, he called me up and basically said, look, we, we're, gonna, we're looking to start the programme again um, because it had sort of died for six years um, or so. We're going to start the programme again. Would you, know, would you be interested in coming back um, to work with Nick Brown, who was um, at the time, it was run by Next Generation at the beginning. So Next Generation Clubs, uh, so Scott Lloyd 
obviously with Next Generation and, and Nick Brown was the head coach. So I just came in as, as one of the coaching team. So I decided to go for that. To come back to Reeds was a great opportunity. And then I haven't left since. No, 17 years, 17 years from there. Yeah. You know, it's been interesting because a lot of people say to me, oh, yeah, how can you, you know, they're sort of, you know, you're still at Reeds. I mean, have, you know, how can you be there 17 years? But it's a few things with that. Firstly, you know, Reeds is, you know, it's very close to my heart, Reeds, because it gave me that opportunity when I was young. If it wasn't for Reeds and, you know, having been there for six years, I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. So, you know, when I'm there, I've got my own personal goals as a coach, but I've also got a lot of desire for Reeds to be successful because it means a lot to me. So that's, that's the first thing. And the second thing is in the 17 years, you know, you always try to evolve and, and the program has evolved a lot in that time. You know, it was, I said, first of all, it was with Nick Brown. Then I became the head coach in 2007 and it was David Lloyd came back in again. And the LTA put a lot of money in, a lot of funding into the academy. And then it was, my team was basically myself, Wayne Black, Neville Godwin. Mm. So to try to help, say, manage those guys, I was, I was the head coach and those guys were coming in. So it was, you know, it was a, it was a, the dynamics were interesting with that. And then uh, Flex, Andrew Richardson came in for a year and worked with me. Then we lost a lot of the funding and I had to bring in uh, an assistant just the two of us, we went, went back to just two coaches. So that was a tough period. And then obviously now the regional, the regional performance center with the LTA supporting us um, with a, with a great staff. So it's 17 years, but in that time, you know, I've had the opportunity to work with some, some great people, you know, to, to learn a hell of a lot. You know, you're talking, you know, never Godwin, I think was, it was ATP coach of the year a few years ago, wasn't he? It was, yeah. You know, so you suddenly got on him on court next to you. We're working with you every day. I was, I was lucky to lucky and, and a great opportunity to have that. And to, to also to try to manage those guys a little bit at times I had to do that. So in that time, it's been, uh, you know, a lot of changes as well. Do you think it's the safe decision to have stayed there for so long? Uh, no, I don't, no, I don't see it that way. I mean, until, you know, I would never be afraid if the opportunity came up to make that step. That's, that's a big goal of mine, but I think it's great to have a base. Um, and that's what Reeds has given me, you know, the school are amazing. You know, they support me. They, they let me really do what I want with the program, but I think to have a base is also very, very important. You know, like I said, as I'm trying to progress myself as a coach, if opportunities come up, um, ideally with Reeds players, you know, players who've gone through the system. And I think I've probably shown that the last couple of years where I've evolved and worked with a few players away from Reeds, you know, with James and Dan for those short periods of time, which have, which have been amazing. So no, we, we, we don't know, but I do. It's been a great base for me. And you've talked about all of your learnings through Reeds, you know, and all of the coaches, the, the list of players is is fantastic. You know, there's there's been a, a lot of very high level juniors that have that have gone through your hands over the years as well. But then one thing I've always admired from afar with you is 
is this relationship that you that you set about with the late great Bob Brett, and that that seems to have had a big impact on your career as well. You haven't just I've used the word safe, you know. Whereas one thing you've not done is just stay in that role. You've actually you've looked to get that external outside mentorship as well. So how how did that relationship start with with Bob? So it started, I was doing my, my level five, my PCA. And uh, one of the uh, things we had to do on the course was we had to do a, a case study of three coaches from, from different sports. So I was good friends with Daley Thompson and I did a case study on him, which was really interesting. And then, you know, while we were chatting one day, he was like, oh, why don't you, you know, why don't I link you in with Bob Brett? Because when Bob Brett was coaching Boris Becker, he brought Daley Thompson in to work with Becker just for him to be around a big personality like Daley Thompson. So anyway, so look, I'll, I'll get called Bob. You go over. I got to be honest with you. I was unbelievably tight going there because Becker was my idol and I knew who, but obviously I knew who Bob Brett was. So, so I went over on my own. Um, I remember it so well. I arrived in San Remo first morning, Bob said, right, let's go. He doesn't, you know, he's a, he's a man of, uh, he, as you know, he, he doesn't say a lot, Bob, you know, um, very quiet guy. So we've gone on to the very top court. He's with Chilich, and he basically had me all day, all day on court with Chilich, um, like picking up balls, feeding, hitting, listening. Um, and it was about six hours that day. Um, I just couldn't believe the, the intensity, the, the attention to detail was incredible. So I remember going back to the hotel that night, obviously so inspired, motivated, and I got a message from Bob, okay, um, 6.30 tomorrow on court. So I'm like up at five, I'm like ready, thinking, okay, it's going to be another, you know, ATP player. You know, he liked what he saw. So anyway, so I arrived and there's no one there, just a basket in the middle of the court. So I've gone on and um, a young lad comes onto the court and, you know, I could tell he hadn't been playing tennis that long. He had like one rucksack, one racket. So he comes on and I'm like, wow, what's, what have I said? You know, what have I done yesterday? What, what, you know, I must've done, must've come across not very well here. Anyway, so the kid, he, he couldn't hit a bando with a banjo. Uh, he, he really, he was basically there as one of the recreation players. So it was an hour and a half. So, you know, banged out the session. And at the end, we managed to get to a 10-shot rally. That was the kind of goal of the session. And as I'm picking up the balls and I'm walking up the stairs, Bob comes out from behind the hedge. So he's basically watched the whole session. Oh, wow. And he says, right, let's go for a coffee. So he sat down and he said, I can help you. He said, uh, you have to show that if you're on court with Marin Cilic or you're on court with a 10-year-old or 12-year-old girl that you're going to have the same work ethic. And if you have a work ethic, I can help you. So then, you know, then that, that was the, basically the start of the relationship with him. And, um, yeah, it was, an, it was an amazing time just being around him and, and, the, and the stuff I learned from him was incredible. Love that story. Honestly, I absolutely love that story. I've got some, yeah. I've got some ideas. 
Yeah, there we go. There we go. I have to build some hedges, I think. Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> At our academy. Exactly. So so then how's that relationship continued? How did that relationship continue over the years? How how frequently did you go out to, to see Bob? How much were, were you in touch with him? It became it became more and more. And I used to go out sort of twice a year. And to be honest with you, the first couple of years when I went out, I was always incredibly nervous because you just never knew what, lay in store for the next day you know it always make you feel uncomfortable on the court and challenge you and put you in a, in situations where you were like this is not sure I can do this you know yeah. you go and put you on a court with with two players who didn't speak a word of English and you'd have to run a session you know always testing you and then it in time it obviously changed to, to being a, you know a great friendship so it was someone that I could you know I could call up I could speak to about myself, about players, worries I had or issues I had where I was struggling with stuff. Um, so he obviously became a, you know, a mentor to me. And, um, and that was a great time in my coaching because you know, I, when I first went over to San Remo, I was probably 28. I just started at Reeds, finding my way as a coach. And it just gave me um, you know, incredible motivation. And just to for me to be to be learning all the time and to have the and, and to have the confidence because he always said to me you know when he went back to this you've got to coach 100 players he said because you've got to know that when you when you get with a good player that you're ready yeah so these years is your apprenticeship you've got to be learning and listening and getting your skills better so when you get a chance that you that you have the confidence to try to get most out of that player I, I, unfortunately, I think I met Bob once, but I didn't get to spend time with Bob. And, and obviously, we, we hear it back in the UK. He came in, brought in, I guess, people, a lot of people in the UK think of the drills and mm. there's, you know, the drills that he brought in. Not another hundred balls type thing, you know, but there's, there's obviously so much more behind that, you know, and the philosophies. What were, if you could give us two or three of his key philosophies, what would they be? Well, the main one with the drills, I think sometimes it got lost a little bit because, you know, he was very much into, let's say we call it old school now, but these drills still have a place now. You have to obviously put your own mark as a coach, but, um, you know, these repetition drills where you do a certain amount of shots and, and you have to get X amount of shots in a target. But really the the teaching behind that was was not necessarily the fitness aspect or the technical repetition aspect. It was, it was the mental, it was the mental side. Bob was all about the mental side and it was, can you complete a task when yeah. you're, t when you're stressed and under stress, can you get over the line or are you going to quit? Because tennis is a, is a battle of characters. You know, he always used to say, you know, talk about that, you know, can you execute under pressure? So he would always try to create that through the drills. You know, when you're thinking you get to like 49 and you don't want to miss, but can you still execute a good shot? And yeah. how are you going to react if you have to start again? Are you going to lose your mind and tank the next 30 minutes or are you going to get back on it and go again? And yeah. I think it's so relatable to, so relatable to matches, isn't it? You know, when you create opportunities and you don't take them and then you, you know, you lose the set and then you have to go again in the second set and dig in and hang in when it's close, I think. So that, that really was the, the main 
way, you know, what he tried to get out of those exercises. And on, and on the mentors, it's obviously had such a, a massive lasting impact on you and your coaching. It brings up the question, why don't more people look to have mentors? No, I think it's a very good question. And I was listening to, um, I was listening to your podcast the other day where you were talking about, you know, when players, coaches lose, lose players or when is the time to move a player on? You know, I thought that was very interesting but because I think that it's, it is this, it is a perception and I think it is, shouldn't be someone else's opinion that this coach is either too young and inexperienced or hasn't done enough and therefore the player should move on. Because if you have a great relationship with that player and the player trusts in what you do and you're willing to learn as a coach, that can go a long way. And, and, and as you know, there's been so many examples over the years where, you know, a coach who maybe hasn't coached loads of players and is having a success with the player. And then someone comes in and says, actually, you know, they, they've just made semis of tarves here. Actually, you know what? You're probably not qualified now to take this player any further. The player moves on, the player gets worse. Yep. But, but on that point, I think having someone to help you is massively important. I think yes. if, if you're on your own, you're thinking, oh, I'm going to do it all myself. I'm not, I don't want anyone else muscling in. But I think if it's on your terms and you can find someone that does have the experience that you trust, that you can link in with and, and to mentor you, um, I think that is, you know, that's massively important and that can help bridge that gap with maybe if a player, a coach is perceived not to have the experience, if you've got someone that you can speak to, um, I think it can make a huge difference. And yeah, we don't, I don't think, we probably do that enough in, in this country. Yeah. I mean, I think every player that the way that I view that is the lead coach is, is responsible for the development of the player, but they're also responsible for making sure that they're consulting the right people or, or bringing in the right tools to be able to, <laughs> help the player or give the player what the player needs to, to advance the way that they're in line with the goals that they have, you know, and that might be bringing in somebody that's more of an expert to help with the serve. But ultimately I think this is where we have to, where, where we really have to look at this connection. I think we overlook connections sometimes, mm. you know, but it's not saying that, if you've got that connection, that's all you need. You need expertise on top of that connection, you know, but if you, you might have someone, Louis Kai is a great example because Louis's got all the expertise in the world. But if you're listening to this, Louis, we, we love you, but traveling with Louis 40 weeks a year, you'd, you'd, you'd lose your marbles because mm -hmm. it would just, it would just be overload. Mm -hmm. Whereas we see in a lot of the doubles guys doing this now, you know, they're, they're traveling with a younger coach, Joe Salisbury traveling with a Rob Morgan, but Rob has the ability to tap in to Louis's amazing expertise <laughs> to be able to then feed that back because he's the one that's got the connection with Joel, you know, and it seems actually like in, in double sense, we have it pretty good. Um, and, and I would say, I, I don't know how you work at Reeds, but you know, you as the main guy at Reeds, you know, you've got your coaches around you. You don't always have to be the lead coach, I would imagine but then they can tap into your expertise to be able to then help 
you know, help, help in the certain areas. And that goes, that goes into life things that mm. goes into physical bits that goes into all sorts. We never quite know what the player needs, but I think sometimes we're a bit rigid thinking the coach is the coach and the coach does everything. Mm. But I'm, I, I don't quite see it like that. I don't know what you well, think. Well, I think, no, no, I agree. I think, and I think, you know, every, every coach has strengths and weaknesses, right? There's no perfect coach. And you're always trying to, you know, you're always trying to improve as a coach. And I think it shows confidence in yourself as a coach as well. It's different if someone's forced into your, you know, forced into, let's say, your coaching team. Um, and they've got an, uh, an alternative, mo- alternative motive, you know, that's different. But I think it shows confidence in yourself as a coach. If you can say, you know what, actually, I'm, I'm kind of struggling a bit on the serve here to see, see how I can get this a little bit better or, you know, I'm struggling to get through to the player with this. And then you have someone that you can, that you can speak to and, you know, use them a smart way to speak to the player. And I think, you know, I think like with the PSP, you know, the LTA, they're, they're trying to do that with, with using, you know, you look at someone like James Trotman, the way they use him with some of the players. Absolutely. But otherwise, how do, how do we ever get to the situation, Dan, when, you know, let's say someone like Ian Barkley, who, you know, you spent so much time with, you know, how do we ever get to a situation where a coach that, you know, Ian Barkley was a good Australian player. He wasn't on, he wasn't traveling the world tour as a pro. He had a, a center in Australia, a club where he had some players there and he started to form a group of players and he took cash from 12 to Wimbledon champion. So you have to, let's let coaches have a go. Let's, if a coach is doing a good job with a player, Let's help that coach. Let's put, you know, see if we can put a team around him or help him to, to make that transition. Um, I think that's something that is the mentoring side is massively important. Any regrets as a coach in terms of players that you felt maybe were taken off you too soon? No, not, not, not regrets. Um, I mean, when you're younger as a coach, I mean, I always, I always sort of think to myself, it's got to be the player first. So looking back, if a player outgrows a program, for example, their improvement is at such a fast rate that they don't have the players to train with, or let's say, for example, you know, you're the base coach and you can't really travel. That's where you've got to be obviously honest with yourself as a coach and say, look, actually, I can't give this player what they need in terms of the time in terms of we don't have the players to train with, it's 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 hard work trying to piece it together every day, and that that's different. But you know, all the players that have been at Reeds have stayed a pretty long time. There was some early on that then went went on to the LTA early doors, where you know, looking back, I thought, well, I could definitely have squeezed a couple of more years out of them. I felt that uh, I could have carried on doing that job. But the way I look at it is that that's 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 part of coaching. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Part of coaching is that. You know, sometimes it will move on and it will, it will be, everyone will be like, okay, this is, this is the right thing. Sometimes it won't be. Um, and then you just have to go again. Yeah. And I think as long as when you're in it for the right reasons, which you clearly are, as long as it feels like they're moving on to something better. That's, yeah. That would always be my thing. And without going into names, I've had it over the years and with the academy, 
and not British players. So that, again, this is, I think we of, often when I speak to British coaches, we can think that this is a British problem, <laughs> whereas mm. it's it's not, it's just, a, it's normal. This is normal in, in, in a human being problem in life, you know, I'm sure outside of the tennis industry as well. But there's been a couple of times where I've I've quite strongly thought it's the wrong thing for the player, and but when it is the right thing for the player, then it's I think it's a much easier thing to go. Do you know what? Feel very comfortable with that. That's you know we we all are very fortunate to play a small role within within players' careers. You know we we get a chance to work with hundreds and hundreds of players while a player has one goal. And we get a chance to play a, a little sh- small role within that. So I think as long as, as long as if it's if it is within a system where it's like okay, you're taking them up to sixteen, but actually you know that that program they they're going to at sixteen is shit hot, and they're gonna get they're gonna get everything that they need. Then I would imagine you feel quite comfortable saying right, time to move on. If if you aren't quite sure that that program is in place, that's when I think it becomes problematic for a, 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 a coach of, of your level yeah and it it had you know it definitely happened at the beginning where players moved on and you were like um oh, you know i don't not sure that's the that's the right choice there's a few that i look back on like that but i guess everyone is you know everyone takes it differently don't they for me it was it was never like something that i would dwell on that long or because sometimes you just can't win that you can't win that one if the parents want to go or someone can offer way more than you you might know in your heart of hearts it's it's not the right thing for the player but in that situation what, what, what can you do I mean you, you either just carry it with you for such a long time and it affects everyone else or you have to suck it up and say okay let's let's focus on the players that I've got let's start again let's try and help them Otherwise, I think it's tough being a performance coach. Yeah, because you know it's it's like a player's ups and downs all the time. I think you have to kind of be quite thick-skinned with that. No, no, absolutely. And and on that, what are your philosophies as a coach? So, well, some I guess more 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 of my values. Um, I think I talked about it earlier. I think to be able to connect with different people and to try to bring out the best in 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 each player. Um, I think that's something that I try to do. You know, I try to really focus on that, get to know the player and uh, spend time and, you know, really feel for them to feel that you're in their corner as well. You know, because we're asking these players to give so much every day. I think it's important that the player knows that you're going to go that extra mile as well. And you're going to do that little bit extra or you're going to say, okay, let's go tomorrow early at seven o'clock and let's, let's try and get this right. And, you know, you have to make sacrifices as a coach as well. I think patience, you have to be incredibly patient when you're working with players day in, day out over such a long, sustained period of time. And then, you know, for, for Reeds, where, where I'm based, is uh, trying to create that, that environment, that culture every day. You know, where your players are coming in and, you, you know, the coaches are on it and the work ethic's good. I think most coaches would say that's, that's a big thing. So they're kind of key things I really feel that uh, I try to do. And anything that you will not compromise on, no matter how good the player is? I think standards. I think it comes, it's standards. I 
think it's um, I'm pretty big on that. You know, if the standards aren't there or players are cutting corners, you've got to be on that. You've got to be all over that. Okay, you might have to dig deeper as to why that's happening, but I think attention to detail and standards every day with the coaches as well, as, as you know, the coaches have got to be the same. You know, they've got to be on, on every ball, on every session. And I think, yeah, so I'd say, I would say standards is something that you, you can't compromise on. And how do you, 17 years, not many weekends off, I would imagine, uh, I imagine there's stuff going on pretty much pretty much all the time in those developmental years. A lot of early mornings, I would imagine, mm. before school, mm. your seven o'clocks. Churning that out, players moving on, starting that whole cycle again and having to set the standards again, set the cultures again. How do you do it? How do you maintain that? You say like that sounds like a long time, but it's 17 years. <laughs> well, ultimately for me, it's I'm a very ambitious person. Um, I don't, yeah, of course, there's days when you like, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's a grind, you know, like from the September to December period when it starts to get, you know, you're getting up and it's dark, you're going home and it's dark. Yeah, that's a grind. But I want to try to produce players. And if you don't do that stuff, you can't. It's as it's as simple as that for me, and um, and I've probably carried that that bit we talked about earlier from my playing, where I'm obsessive now. Obviously, you have to find a life balance, but yeah, it's a it's a huge passion. It's a huge passion of mine to and for British tennis to try to produce, you know, top international juniors if they stay until eighteen, but then they go on to become world class players, or you know, I spend time with other players that aren't at Reeds is just to try to always do the best job I can and to just give it my all. And um, that keep that kind of keeps me going. You know, we bring players, young players into Reeds and we try to produce world-class players. You know, that if I can be part of that journey, that's ambition, that's what I want to do, where that goes, if that goes beyond Reeds with those players. But I mean, obviously, ultimately, like I said at the beginning, I've got my own personal ambition and at the moment I'm working with those players at Reeds and, and, and I, uh, I want to do everything I can for them um, and Reeds, is, Reeds is a, a, itself as an academy I want to, to be the best academy and you know the last year and a half it has been it has been nice to to step outside and you know work with the players that you mentioned that's been um, incredibly motivating to spend time with those players and then you bring that back to you bring that back to base. If you want to work with world class players that are going into being, I guess, world class professional players, you could do that, in my opinion. But it would take probably moving away from being in a in a position of a director at an academy. Hmm. However, that is a massive risk. And this is this is this is my one of my bigger things in in tennis, the perception. I'm going back to where we started. The perception of the better is that the best coaches work with the best players in the world. That's the perception from the outside. However, they also are remunerated better at that end. Okay, so it's not just a perception. It's it's also reality in terms of what the job entails. It's you know you the money's higher. It's higher profile. It's probably less work. 
Mm-hmm. It's probably less work. I know there's a lot of traveling that, that goes with it as well. However, to go from being someone who produces world-class juniors to doing that, there's a big security jump. It's not a, it's not, there's not a ladder. They can most, if I'm an accountant, you know, I do my accountant work, I move up, I move up, I move up. And then maybe one day I become the CFO of a company and, and I'm, and I do very well, but there's not really risk that I need to take along Mm. that way. Whereas it feels your situation. And I think a lot of people, coaches are in this situation and this is probably where I got the word safe from earlier. It's safer to stay with the secure job that there's a secure income than it is to take that leap. Yeah, and I think it. Uh, there's some coaches that that, that don't they don't want to do that because you, as you say, you know you can you can do that, and the player has a three bad months and you're out of job. And I don't know. I don't know how many of these. You probably know more than me. I don't know how many of these tour coaches have contracts. Um, but I'm sure it depends on on the le- on the level of the player. So obviously, on the flip side, you've got the chance of earning, you know, a lot more money with the bonuses. And on the other side, you've obviously got the risk that if, you know, if the player's losing matches, is potentially going to be the the coach that goes first. I mean, the first thing for me is the player's got to ask me to do it. That hasn't happened yet. You know, that's that's never happened. So when that happens it's food for thought for me and um i as i said if it's a player from reeds would be even better someone who's come through the system but i'm you know i'm ambitious as a coach and to experience um you know being on the tour and and you know i think every performance coach wants to who's put put the hours in and put time in uh wants to live those big matches yep you know, you sometimes see, you know, you you see coaches or you see your friends and you think, oh, I wonder what it must be like to to live that five set match in the semis of Wimbledon or, you know, you're getting up in the morning and you've got, you know, the final of a Masters series or something like that. So that is a motivator that drives me. But uh, I think still good to have a base when you come back with your player you know somewhere you feel like you can come back to and have a good it's like you you know you where where you are a great base it's good to have a base that you feel comfortable to come back to yeah you know it's it's risk reward isn't it a little bit but it feels it just feels as if we need to professionalize our sport a little bit more because even as we talk about it like that it's that shouldn't be the case you know how I don't know, and we don't have long enough on this episode to to be talking to be talking about that. But whether it was you become an employed ATP coach, as an mm. example, you know, mm. you've qualified through to, you know, for, for for by doing these certain whatever it might be, you know, to be now a qualified ATP coach who gets a wage, a guaranteed mm. wage, because that it's not a way to live life to think if my player loses a few matches, I'm out of a job. Yeah. Or, or if I, if I speak to my player because I wasn't happy that he didn't respect me earlier on in the practice session. And if I have that out with my player, I could lose my job. Yeah. You know, it, it's not a very professional way to run an in, an industry, you know, when we're talking about, because what we're talking about here and for the listeners, somebody like Ben and not just a single out Ben, because there's, 
thousands of coaches globally that are doing this. We'll be up at six o'clock every morning on that court at seven o'clock, giving up probably 70% of his weekends. You know, this is this is the reality of our sport and we do it because we love it and we have, have passion, absolutely. But at the same time, there has to be some level of security in there to allow for career advancement, you know, to, to allow for ambition. I, I don't have the answers. I think the interesting thing is that I think, uh, not look at it a slightly different way, I, totally, I totally, totally agree with you. It's, you know, it's... um. You know, the thought of taking a job and being out three months later when you when you've not you know you're doing your best is is a tough one but I do think a lot of coaches it's also quite tough to get into the tour if you're not your name's not circulating around the tour that's also quite tough you know who's going to give you that who's going to give you that yes. break of I don't know this guy we coaches in academy well whereas I've seen this guy on the tour okay He's had 10 players over the last two years, but actually... Alan Kerbishley. Yeah, he's, yeah he's, been, he's been on the tour, so he must be good. So, and I think that's why a lot of people, when they take that, that's what they weigh up. They say, right, you know, if I can get on the tour, be around good players, be around coaches, network, do the best I can. Once that relationship finishes, I may have met a few people, a few agents, a few players. They've seen me on the practice court. And it's quite common, obviously, in the women's game you know, probably more in the women's game than the men's game. But I think that's what people that go into that situation without the contracts, without the guarantees, they look at it as once I'm on the tour and my face is known, there's so many players getting getting rid of coaches that um, I might get offered a job. And that's it. That's yeah. it, folks. I mean, that, that and, and exactly. And, and I think I think it's a really good conversation to have, Ben. And I think it's a really good place for us to... First, a wrap up before we move into the quick fire round. Okay, no pre warning of this, but yeah, <laughs> never. Hey, this is authentic. This podcast, you know what I mean? There's not nothing set up about this podcast, individuals or groups, groups, indoors or outdoors, outdoors, forehand or backhand, forehand, gym. Or on the court? On the court. Your favourite ever tennis moment? Playing semi-final at Junior Wimbledon. Doubles, not singles, so sadly. Well, we'll edit that bit out. Yeah. <laughs> but which actually, no, hey, it's double singles. It's, it's an amazing achievement. Your favourite ever tennis player? Boris Becker. Your favourite Grand Slam? Wimbledon. Closely followed by US, but Wimbledon. Closely followed by Australia. <laughs> yeah. They're all they're all pretty good. ATP Cup or Davis Cup? I'm going to say Davis Cup because growing up, Davis Cup was unreal when we were younger. So I'm going to go Davis Cup. I wish they'd get that going a bit more. What's one rule change you would make in tennis? Uh, to allow coaching. And who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? Hmm. You said Nick Brown. Uh, Andrew Battles. Do you know what? Both on the list, but might get some contact details off you for both. Both would be great guests. Ben, I've waited a while for this. 
I said at the start, don't want to just blow smoke up your backside, but you're you're someone I have a massive amount of respect for. You know, you're someone I always enjoy talking tennis. So for me to get the chance just to have a have an hour, hour and a half to chat tennis with you. If one person listens, if a million people listen, I don't really care. Uh, for selfish reasons, it's just it's great to to pick your brain a little bit. I think you're doing a great job. You really are. You know, keep up the great work. You know, it is one of these sports where, you know, we chip away, you chip away, you chip away, but there's a lot more people noticing the job that you're doing than you may realise. So so well done on everything you do and keep up the great work. Appreciate it, Jan. Great opportunity to, thanks for the opportunity to coming on and uh, keep up the great work with the podcast because uh, the guests you're having on and the insight into tennis is brilliant. Top man. Thank you. Great, great to chat tennis. Another great tennis chat with a great tennis person in Ben Harron. Uh, big thanks to Ben. I know he, he, he talked to me beforehand. He, he's not a massive fan of doing those things. Uh, there was definitely signs of some nerves at first, but uh, if you really listen to everything that Ben says, it was an incredible story, an incredible insight. And as always, I've got Vicky next to me. Um, unfortunately, to report, we are both struggling a little bit. Uh, we have to be thankful we haven't got it as bad as some, but we have had the dreaded COVID over the last few days. So first of all, how are you feeling? Considerably better than the last few days. I think I think I jinxed us. I was saying in last week's episode how it was so lovely to see the Brits over from England and felt like things were returning back to normal and then bam, we've got COVID. Are we blaming them if we worked that out yet? No, I don't think we're blaming them, but I think it is at this point, I guess, I would also, the serious part of this virus, I would definitely like to, you know, pass on our best to everyone who ever is suffering or has been suffering a lot worse than we have over the years as well, you know, to have just the last few days feeling what this virus is, it's certainly not been easy and it's certainly brought back right. home the challenges that, that we all have and the ongoing challenges that we still have. But hope everyone's cracking on with their life as best that they can. And and what about the episode? So so Ben, like I said at the start, he, he wasn't overly comfortable doing something like this. However, once we got talking, his, his knowledge, his insight, his story, he's dedicated his life to the sport. You know, some, some real big takeaways to take from that one. I think the main one for me was mentoring, and he's exactly right. I don't think um, I don't think we do it anywhere near enough, not only in tennis, but in all sorts of dif different professions. I think there's definitely an element of not wanting to be the one that maybe doesn't know what he's doing or doesn't know everything um, that kind of maybe prevents us from, from reaching out to people with far more experience than us when we're starting out. But I think actually the longer you are in, in your career, in your profession as a coach or whatever it may be, I think it then becomes harder. Yeah, well, somebody like Ben, I actually think he's, he's a, he would be a great mentor himself. And, and, and actually, even at the time that he went to speak to Bob Brett all of those years ago, already I had a lot of respect for Ben. You know, he's a very natural coach, has a very natural way around people and also with with the game. And I think exactly that, Vicky, I think it, it shows a great confidence to be able to go, do you know what, I don't know it all here. I'm going to go and search it. It is has to be right up there, one of my favourite stories, the story <laughs> yeah. he told. You know, it completely, I wasn't expecting it at all. <laughs> you know, that all of a sudden he's hiding, Bob Brett's hiding behind the bush. 
you know, and appeared. And, and, and that would say everything you need to know about Ben because, of course, he's going to do the the lesson to the same level that he, that he always does. And I think it's, it's a great example to young coaches out there. Don't do these things to impress your bosses, to impress the parents of the players that you're coaching. Do it because you want to be the best coach that you can be and you want to give the best service that you can give. And when that happens, good people see it. Bob Brett saw that in Ben and then spent many years with him, helping him through that. And and I agree that the, the mentoring side of something, we see it all the time. Those that, that search that put themselves in a much better position. You know, and I think it's trying to remember to to think long term. Don't just think short term. You know, go giving up a little bit of, of money, giving up your time in the first instance to get the right knowledge and the right people supporting you behind you. And if we go into other sports, I always go to the Bobby Robson, Jose Mourinho one, you know, mm-hmm. back it back in the day. In in tennis, you know, we've seen many examples of it of different people, you know, on, on the podcast as well and I would strongly advise all young coaches to get out there I know from speaking to Nick Wheel at the LTA it's a, it's a big area that they're now trying to bring through in what they're doing as part of their coach education system um, but I, I can't help thinking when we talk about reads it feels as if it's its own little microclimate within the UK system and even taking Ben all the way back to his playing days with Jamie Delgado, Tim Henman, it felt like they had their own little microclimate. And it certainly feels to me like they've still got that, you know, and almost that kind of just head down, crack on, get the work done, you know, bring in the, in, in the best support possible. And it was, it was lovely to hear all of those stories. Well, it felt very much like it's his second family, home away from home. You know, it, he's been there for so long. Um, you, it's so difficult to create that environment. You know, hearing him just talking about it, he obviously loved his experience there, his time there as a, as a child. And he said repeatedly, it's one of his main goals to make Reed successful, to bring players through Reeds. That passion is kind of still going now as head coach. Although it was interesting, you know, he it's clear that he does love working there, but he does have those ambitions still to work at the top end of the game. I think it'll always be the the big one in tennis. I, I speak to a, a lot of coaches um, during the last few days where when I've been up to it, I've, I've ended up having a few conversations with coaches via, via text message. And, and, and time and time again, it comes up in our sport, you know, we must be a little bit crazy in lots of ways because in in the performance field, trying to work towards the, the higher end of junior tennis or, or, or push on to the higher end of, of professional tennis as well, there really isn't much money at all. There's a lot of sacrifice that's been made and actually the only fuel that can keep coaches like Ben going is obsession, is is passion, is obsession. And because actually, if we sit back and we look at it in the light of day, it, it's nonsensical. You know, why would you give up your social life? Why would you give up your family life? Why would you take these financial risks that give you very little security? And the only reason is hope. The only reason is passion, obsession with the sport. And 
it, it's no matter which way we look at it, we're undressing it on this podcast. There's many different podcasts out there. There's many different people that talk about it out there. There truly is something special about our sport. It's got the X factor. It's hard to always put our finger on what it is. If you're listening to these podcasts, you probably have it as well. You know, it, it gets into our into our veins, it gets into our blood, and that's what I love about these raw conversations. I I love the conversation with Ben. He's he's one of the best out there. He he has that raw obsession in the sport. And hey, let's stop fighting it. We go with it. We keep trying to find out everything that we possibly can, and and move on. But I'll get off my soapbox now. I'm going to go back. I've thrown some energy at this now for, <laughs> the, <laughs> for, for the last 15 minutes. But hopefully we'll be back again next week. We have Jimmy Arias uh, coming next week. I'm supposed to be talking to him later in the week. So hopefully that will go ahead. For those of you that don't know Jimmy Arias, listen to Nick Bolateri, episode 100. He tells us all about Jimmy Arias. It's, a, it's an amazing guest. He's the current director of IMG Tennis was the one that transformed the forehand in the modern game and many, many more stories. So he'll be coming next and many more guests, as always, is our promise. Hope everyone's well. Thank you for listening. But until next time, I'm Dan Keenan and we are Control the Controllables.